Hey everybody, welcome to episode 8 of Who and Company. My name is Brent. And I'm Drew, and we've got a jam-packed show for you today. Yes, we do. We'll be reviewing the newly completed Series 10, along with the trailer for the 2017 Christmas special, and discussing the future being all-girl with the casting of Jodie Whittaker as the 13th Doctor, and what that means for the show and to us. And we're doing all that with this month's guest, NPR's Petra Mare, whose choice of non-Doctor Who TV has us reevaluating pastry-related sexual innuendo, soggy bottoms, and whether or not we've left the oven on. We've also just created a Patreon page for the show, so if you'd like to donate anything to help support the show and our monthly server fees, we would greatly appreciate it. That's patreon.com slash whoandcompany. And we'll get started with the show right after this. On your marks, get set, bake! This month is an editor and resident nerd at NPR Books. She's a frequent guest on the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, and she's recently reviewed an indecent number of graphic novels. Petra Mayer, welcome to Who and Company. Thank you for having me. It's great. We uh, are really looking forward to this particular episode. One, because you are our guest, and it's very exciting to have you on. Two, you know, we only do this podcast every month, so... Brent and I have not gotten a chance to discuss the last three episodes of Series 10 or anything that has happened since that moment. So this is going to be a fun fun chance for, for three folks to, to gab about some really cool stuff. Um, but first off, Petra, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Uh, wow, that's a that's a broad question. Uh, <laughs> as you said, I am uh, the resident nerd at NPR Books. I'm one of two people who run online books coverage at National Public Radio. So books.npr.org is my domain. Um, I focus particularly on genre fiction coverage on sci-fi, fantasy, romance, mystery, thriller, YA, graphic novels, kids, Jane Austen, fanfic, all the good. As they say on My Dad Wrote a Porno, which is my other favorite podcast besides this one, all the good bits. <laughs> so I uh, commission and edit book reviews. Um, I run our social media feeds. You can hit me up at NPR Books on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, and then when there's anything super nerdy going on, generally our news managers are like, Petra, we don't know what this is, but we know it's important, so you deal with it. <laughs> Which means that you've done a lot of coverage of the San Diego Comic-Con last week. San Diego Comic-Con, anything happening on Doctor Who, uh, the whole sad puppies debacle at the Hugos a couple years ago, any, anything that's nerd news uh, is pretty much my bailiwick. Oh, very good. Excellent. Well, all righty. Um, well, that's cool to, to hear that. Um, obviously, you were a Doctor Who fan. Uh, yeah. I, I've heard of you every time that Doctor Who seems to get mentioned on Pop Culture Happy Hour or NPR. You are right there covering it. Um, so it's it's excellent to have you on to talk about really everything that's that we're running into. Now, recently you finished a a project where um, fans were asked to send in was it their top five favorite graphic novels, or was it comics or graphic novels, comics, single issues, 
everything yeah so we uh for years have done these summer reader polls we've done and they're they're usually like your favorite 100 we've done ya we've done uh romance we've done sci-fi and fantasy we've done thrillers beach reads mid-grade so this year i was like hey we haven't done comics so the way it works is uh they're not straight reader polls um what they are is we get people to vote, to send in their nominations for, as you said, their five favorite, in this case it was comics, graphic novels, TPBs, single issues, anything, web comics, newspaper strips, anything that could possibly be considered sequential art, we ask people to give us their five favorites. And that usually ends up with like a giant list of thousands of nominations. And then I go through that, haha. <laughs> and uh, and then we have an expert panel that go. You know, I get it down to some semi-finalists. Usually, it's like anything that gets above a certain number of votes. Uh, and then it goes to our expert panel, and those are always, you know, uh, critics and creators in whatever field that we are doing the poll in. And this year it was amazing. We had Stephen's mom, Maggie Thompson, who's, you know, an Eisner's judge and a, you know, giant in the industry. We had our critics. We had Glenn Weldon and Atelka Lahosky, and we had Spike Trotman from Iron Circus, who's amazing, and G. Willa Wilson, <laughs> as Ms. Marvel, and who I had to really stop myself from fangirling at. And so we had this epic conference call, and we hammered the semi-finalist list down to a hundred finalists, not, you know, not ranked, not top, not top 100 votes, but just sort of what we thought of as a well-rounded and kind of idiosyncratic and curated list that combined reader input with judge input to come up with like what we thought was a really cool discovery tool for comics. So um, it's, it's online. If you go to npr.org slash summer comics, you can see all the coverage around it. Um, I am, really proud of it. I think the final list was super cool. And because I was running it, although I was not a judge, I got to force them to put my favorite comics on it too, which is why Next Wave and Finder are there. Woohoo! <laughs> and it's not just a list too. I mean, it's there's there's a paragraph review of each one that kind of explains why it's a part of the list um, and why it's a good, a good example of why it should yes. be on the list. Yes, uh, exactly. That seems like that must have <clears throat> been exceptionally time-consuming. Yes, me and Glenn Weldon split the split the writing of the summaries, and you can tell which ones he wrote because they're much more much longer and elaborate than the ones I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, well, I mean, that's the point of a curated list is you want to know why things are on it, right? Like I I get really PO'd when I go to some listicle and it's just like here's a list of things, and I say no, but why are these things on this list? Because so, things, <laughs> things. Um, so yeah, that was an important part of it for us was that we justified why everything was on the list and explained how it got there, whether, you know, the judges felt strongly about it or the readers felt strongly about it. Like people gave me a lot of crap for including ElfQuest. And I was like, dude, that was the biggest vote getter. Also, I read it for this project and it's incredibly addictive. <laughs> like, it really is. I've got three volumes sitting on my desk right now. Dude, I sat up all night and binged ElfQuest because I it was like, I can't write the summary of this if I haven't read it. So, <laughs> and then I just got sucked in. I was like, oh my God, this is crazy and bizarre and I am really addicted to it. So uh, it was a discovery tool for me too, which is like half the fun of working on these projects. So I find out stuff that I want to read. Brent, we don't talk about comics very often, um, mm -hmm. though we, I know eventually we're going to have a Doctor Who comics uh, a couple of Doctor Who comics guests. We certainly have plenty who've, who've said they'd be willing to come on the show. Um, and uh, do you read comic books uh, on a regular basis or quasi regularly or at all? Um, mostly not at all. But like when I was a kid, I had a lot of uh, like the Star Wars comics. I actually had issue one, but it is like long since been destroyed or missing. <laughs> so uh, I, I had like 
Spider-Man, uh, Captain America type of thing. And then when I got to be a little older, maybe uh, teens, early 20s, I started going to the local comic shop every month for the uh, Doctor Who magazine because that was the only way you could get it at that time. So uh, there's a new series, uh, what was it, like last year when uh, Paul Cornell did the uh, John Pertwee yes. series? Yeah, and I'd really like to get that. Um, I heard it's coming out in the graphic novel soon. So Came out uh, in trade uh, hardback last week and so awesome. yeah yeah it's uh had it d- delivered straight to my straight to my door it is fabulous the art is fabulous uh and i don't want to say anything else because i don't want to ruin any potential spoilers for you petra have you read um paul cornell's third doctor it's sitting run? in my tbr file i have a massive the the, the ironic thing about the comic project was that it kept me so busy that i didn't have time to read so i have i I still i'm one of those weird archaic people who goes to the comic shop every month and and picks up my box of single issues right so i have a massive stack and in it i know that i subscribe to those because three is my favorite classic doctor and paul cornell is one of my favorite who writers so i i was all about that when it was announced i just haven't had time to read it yet it's sitting in my living room well, maybe maybe we'll do a, a short little uh, special after uh, all three of us have read it, and we can we can get you back on here and, and compare notes. For sure, I am here for Foxy Grandpa. Like he's oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the artist uh, whose name escapes me at this moment um, does such an amazing job realizing these characters, um, and you know everything that you love about the Pertwee era is represented in this this comic paul cornell is is definitely a man who knows his who appreciates his third doctor and knows what the readers and the fans want nice good i'm excited for it excellent um so one of the things that we always like to do is because we are talking to doctor who fans you're obviously a doctor who fan kind of curious about how you became a doctor who fan so i i'm a relatively you know comparatively recent doctor who fan i grew up and all my older girlfriends, the ones who I sort of caught nerddom from as a kid, you know, the one who, ones who handed me Sandman comics and, and Anne McCaffrey novels, they were all Whovians. Um, and I somehow never caught the bug. Uh, and I remember when the show was revived thinking, eh, the logo's tacky. I don't want to watch that. <laughs> Which is titanically stupid of me, I know. Uh, and then I finally, like, it just it just reached critical mass around the start of the 11th Doctor era. I mean, I had friends who had sat me down and I had seen, you know, Pyramids of Mars and a lot of the good classic stuff, um, a lot of a lot of Tom Baker era stuff. And I had really enjoyed it. Um, but I I was going through a rough time in my life and I needed some escapism. And I sat down with my friends and watched the 11th hour. And that was it. Like some switch flipped in my brain. And then I had to watch every single thing that had remotely fringely been associated with this show. So. Uh, and interestingly, like I started with the eleventh hour. It's ten who really became my doctor when I watched that sequence of the show. Sure, sure. Uh, so uh, it, we may have, you know, uh, gotten a little preview of it. But is so Pertwee is your your favorite uh, He's classic? My favorite classic doctor. He's so bitchy. I love it. Also, <laughs> I'm a car door, and that's why I love Bessie. <laughs> like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, like I like uh, I. I think the show is, you know, it's in the way that the bottle episodes are somehow the most, sometimes the most compelling episodes. Like, I like the Doctor when he's working in some limitations and sticking him on on Earth and making him deal with human bureaucracy, I think, is a great ploy, especially for a Doctor like Three, who was so imperious and so aristocratic, you know? 
Well, it's a good segue to the series 10 because in many ways people have drawn a numerous comparisons to the third doctor in this most recent series with Capaldi uh, as you know, least of which is a fact that he seems to have decided to stay on earth uh, at least in the beginning of the series for an extended period of time. You know, when we, we were introduced him in the pilot. Uh, so let's begin with that. What did uh, you, cause we're, this is something that um, as for the listeners, both Brent and I haven't got a chance to finish discussing how Series 10 worked for us as a whole, and that's what we're going to do. So how did Series 10 work for you as a whole? Uh, Petro, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, with some notable flaws, namely the finale, I thought it was amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. I, uh, I think I said this, I've said this before, but uh, this was the season that made me go... Okay, I'll give Stephen Moffat a chance. <laughs> I think he's starting to learn. <laughs> much as I have to grit my teeth and say that, uh, that was how much I liked this season, except for the finale. Yeah, right as he's leaving. Uh... <laughs> well, you know, that's better than nothing. At least we got one season of, 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 of 12 and, and, uh, and Bill, because my God, why? Why did she have to leave? I, well, anyways, <clears throat> we can talk about that later. Sure, sure. Uh, Brent, uh, just as a whole, what did you think? I thought Series 10 was the best since Series 5 as far as overall season. Not Never been a big fan of Clara. I thought she stayed on maybe a year too long. You're my and, kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I never got into her character at all, really. Uh, but Bill, I just love Bill. And I actually like Nardle, too. He's very funny. Um but series 10 it it just seemed uh i know there were some heavy parts in there but it seemed a lot lighter this year like more fun like you know you were waiting to see each week what what they were going to get into and and um and it was more from bill's perspective again as far as going out on an adventure and and um i just i really liked it that the little I'm sure we'll talk about it, but the little three-parter in the middle was kind of, to me, the the downside of the whole season. But uh, overall, I I really liked it. But Bill, 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 I was very sad that she's leaving. Yeah, I think my thoughts definitely echo both of yours. Um, Petra, you had mentioned the 11th hour, and Brent, you had mentioned the fifth uh, series. And I, I got that feeling, too. There was there was a kind of, maybe it's Moffat knowing that he's, this is his last season. He can kind of do what he wants. And there's so much fun and inventiveness in this one that I, I really dig. Um, I will say that there were less standout episodes in this series for me that I would have pulled out and said, oh, these are going to be amongst my favorites forever. But also less episodes I disliked that I would have said, well, I feel like this kind of ruins the, the series as a whole. So I thought it was a very relatively consistent um the flaws never kind of tilted it towards you know well i don't like that one so i enjoyed it and again bill 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 um yeah yeah. i i would have you know i i thought that general louise coleman was an amazing actress is an amazing actress really quite uh astounding i just didn't like what the writers did with her character um until the actually i liked the final season i felt that they had an idea of what uh who Clara was, you know, she wanted to be the doctor and that, you know, that sort of was her downfall. If that had been series nine and that had really messed up 
Copaldi's doctor, and then Bill came along, say series, uh, or then Bill came along series ten or nine, and we could get her for two seasons. That would have been that would have been aces for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Clara, I mm-hmm. agree with you totally. I think I think Jenna Louise, Louise Coleman is a good actress. Uh, but I just, that character for me just embodied everything, every problem that I had with Moffat in his inability to write human characters and particularly women. I mean, as she was introduced as the impossible girl, she was literally a plot device with legs. Yeah. She she was generically spunky and sexy and she existed solely to serve the doctor. And I I was not there for that. But yeah, I mean, for Ark in season nine, that was when I began to think, okay, like I like what they're doing with her. They're making her unlikable in interesting ways instead of unlikable because she's terribly written um you know i also just was super tired of the danny pink plot line because i you know the you have to choose between choose which man you want to spend like no 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 i was done with that when they did it with amy i you know i was done with that before they ever did it (laughs) yeah absolutely and plus uh rory you can't you can't draw a similar plot line uh and then compare it to rory who (laughs) I know I'm a fan, so uh... I loved, no, yeah, I, I loved Rory, but the one episode where like she was trying, you know, the yeah. Anyways, no, I'm 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 right there with you. Um, do you have a favorite episode from this series? Oh, Either I think of you. I was, oh, go ahead, because I I'm I've got to think about it because I, I I think I'm with you in that I feel like there wasn't a super memorable standout episode. There were a lot of really good ones, but uh, the Doctor Falls like way way ahead of all the rest. Um, Oxygen would probably be a close second. But you know, I I know a lot of people say that the uh, World Enough of Time was their favorite, which was a very good episode. But to me personally, I felt like it was sort of uh, all of the uh, surprise and and uh, punch in it sort of got taken out because we knew everything that was coming with the Master. You know John Sim and the Cybermen and all of that kind of kind of let the air out of the tire a little bit. Yeah. There. Actually, yeah, you that... know what? oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, could you? I'm trying to imagine a universe in which we could have lived in without knowing that ahead of time. <laughs> and you know, I, I sort of envy the the not we who don't pay attention to websites or podcasts and didn't know it was coming and just casually sort of watch the show. Maybe don't watch the next time trailers and just send, Oh, well that's interesting. <laughs> I, Which was my <laughs> wife and she loved oh. it. She loved it. And she's not a big super doctor who fan. She just watches it because I do, <laughs> but she, she loved that. She was like, that's, that's one of the best episodes I've seen in a long time. I was like, okay, good. I have to say, now that I've had a chance to go back and actually look at an episode list, which I surreptitiously did while you guys were talking, um, and that made me remember that actually the episode that really knocked my socks off this season was Extremis. And I had forgotten that because the next two were not so great. They didn't really capitalize on the on the amazing setup, but I remember watching that episode and going, oh my god, this is probably my favorite episode since Mummy on the Orient Express. This, this has genuine emotional heft, genuine a genuine tinge of fear to it, you know, which we're all grown ups. We don't actually get scared by Doctor Who, but that episode was a little scary. Oh, I, I was terrified by um, uh, Empty Child Doctor Dances. I actually had to turn the lights on the first time I watched that. It, oh, sure. It, that it that was, was terrifying, but we're talking genuinely about creeping. more than 10 years ago now. So like. <laughs> as far as hiding behind the sofa, I will freely admit that, that my introduction, watching that first uh, series one for the first time and coming to those episodes, I'm like, you know what? 
I may not watch this at midnight in a dark house. Just going to click on that light and let that go on. It's true. Gas Mask Kid is one of the creepiest things in the entire show. He's way scarier than, like, the Weeping Angels or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Petro, I'm with you. Extremis is, I think, my favorite. Um, And it was one of those, when I reviewed it, I I was saying that depending on what the other two episodes in this light trilogy was going to be like, that could color what I feel about it. Yeah. And it did. It did. It brought it down a little bit in my estimation yeah. because it felt like, one, th- it really wasn't a trilogy. There was three stories that they figured out a way to link narratively, but they really had nothing to do with each other. I think individually, they're both. All three of the stories were pretty good. Uh, that were actually brought down by their attempt to make them uniform. Um, it just goes to show how much better Extremis was because those other two episodes had a very hard time keeping up with something like that. Yeah. They weren't bad, but but they weren't at the level of... Yeah. That's my kind of who. You know, a good mix of comedy and horror and a little ambiguity mixed in. And just the Doctor being clever because only the Doctor can do that kind of stuff. And, and, a, and a fair punch of pathos, too, I think, you know. Yes. I always like it when the Doctor... And, and they have to do it sparingly because it's powerful, but when the Doctor is genuinely scared or freaked out or thinks he can't do it you know mm-hmm. i i, I kind of like those moments because if he's superman then it's boring yeah yeah i think you know the doctor is an alien and part of his facade when he's he's showing us he's alien is being all-knowing and you know he's going to get out of every situation but there's moments when he's so very human and i enjoy those uh, because i can relate to them especially with capaldi who can emote so beautifully I think that was a big thing about this season for me was that the writers, I mean, this is just my impression of it, but like, you know, when, when he was introduced, the writers were clearly playing off his appearance. Like he's older. He's not, you know, he's not going to be the young dashing doctor. He's got attack eyebrows. We're going to write him as this angry character who doesn't care about the earth. And he leaves Clara to make her own choices and blah, blah, blah. But I think once they started letting themselves be guided by his acting ability, the character became so much richer. Like, I don't know of another actor in that role where they just focus on his face and let him emote and you see so much and so subtly you know it's amazing what he can do with just his eyebrows yeah i i missed a chance to meet him at comic-con because there was some skullduggery with party invitations that i'm still salty about (laughs) (laughs) you you'll get your chance and i think the beauty of it is that capaldi is going to be one of those doctors who will embrace the fact that he he is no longer the doctor, and that conventions happen. I mean, this is a person who, on his lunch breaks, would go to the Doctor Who experience and just hang out with fans. I think we'll see him again, and not just in big conventions like, you know, money-grubbing Wizard World kind of things. So I, I, I devoutly hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Brent, you had mentioned Nardal, and we barely mentioned Nardal. Um, so the question is, uh, for the both of you, do you feel that this TARDIS team, first series 10 worked didn't work what they could have done to make it better or um i thought it worked just fine i was mm, usually when you have a first season of a doctor or a companion or somebody that you've never seen on screen before um some of the episodes aren't going to be totally right for them because the people that are writing are kind of writing in the dark they, they haven't seen the the uh performance of the actor in that role yet so they can't really write for them they're writing for a character brief on a page 
So, like, I, I thought um, the first few with Bill were really, really great for her. And then kind of in the middle, she kind of faded out or became just sort of generic companion. And then she sort of came back at the end, especially the last two. Um, what do you think about that? Oh, I kind of disagree with you, actually. <laughs> yeah. I, um... I, well, she was inconsistently written, that's for sure. But, like, I feel like the thing that... why The reason why I don't like, especially the finale, is that I just thought that all of her agency was taken away. I mean, yes, I guess I suppose the doctor implanted that suggestion in her psyche to wait for him. But, like, we've done the waiting girl thing. And the idea that Bill, who has been so inquisitive and so proactive, would just sit there, you know, <laughs> for however many years it was... It felt like plot hand wavium to me. I felt like they they overlooked her character in order to fit her into the plot that had you know whereas so that so that they could set up the story so that the doctor could arrive just too late for her to 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 prevent her being cyberized. You know that they kind of gutted her character for for plot purposes, and that annoyed the crap out of me. Even though I was super <laughs> excited to see the Mondasian Cybermen because for me they are the creepiest ones with their weirdo cloth faces and their weirdo voices. Like I, you know, that was, that was the charm of the episode for me. But like, apart from that, I thought, Ugh, you totally went against the grain of this character to fit her into a plot. And that's the thing that historically has annoyed me intensely about Moffat's writing is that he sacrifices actual human character depth and human reactions to situations for puzzle box plots to all click together. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, 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 I this is the best hardest team in a while. For oh me. yeah, sorry, I didn't say anything about that. I, I do, just, I just, oh, go ahead. I, sorry. Oh, sorry. I I just feel like if there was a second year with Nardle and Bill, it would be even better. I I think. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I would I would kill for another year of Nardle. I mean, I never liked Nardle at the beginning because I thought he was celebrity stunt casting, and they never super justified why he was there, other than that he's a British celebrity. I know, and at first I thought his character was annoying, but this season they gave him more depth. Like, I liked Nardal as the guy who can kick the doctor's ass if necessary. That Then I was like, okay, now you have a place in the TARDIS. I, I will accept this. You are not just annoying, bumbling, celebrity stunt casting comic relief. Um, so yeah, now that they, 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 yeah, they settled on this formula and it worked, I really wish we could have it another year. <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the reasons why Extremis stood out, not you know, all the reasons we listed, but also we get sort of that backstory, because you know, Extremis is three stories in one, and part of that is the introduction of Nardol as a competent TARDIS companion. Yeah. Not not just a an assistant, not someone who's just going to act as Dr. Y, but who ha who has his own agency. You know, in early on, we see that Nardol, I think it's the um, Mysterio, where Nardol can fly the TARDIS. Like, that should have been... Uh, a clue for the get-go that this is going to be a character who has something a little bit more than our previous companions have sort of shown. Uh, but Extremis is where we find out that he is a secret badass. And, I, you know, but but that's not his character. Like, that may be the, the facade that he's trying to uh, show off, but that he's still easily um, surprised and shocked by things and can be scared. All right, so let's talk about the finale in a little bit more depth, unless there's another episode that you would like to discuss. Uh, no, I, I'm fine to move on. Okay, so um, Petra, sounds like um, your main complaint for the finale was its handling of Bill. I, am I correct in, in stating that? Yeah. Um, 
I'm trying to go back and sort of think about other reasons why I didn't like the finale, but I think it's primarily to do with the treatment of Bill. Um, I didn't super love that Nardle was shuffled off with like a convenient romantic subplot, but right, you know, right. it felt very pat. There were things I did like about the finale. Like I, I loved the final interaction between the master and Missy, you know, where they're both kind of lying there on the ground, dying and laughing their asses off. I thought that was pretty perfect. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it, it was primarily to do with the treatment of Bill. Um, it just, all of it just felt like, like plot divisium, you know? And, and I was doubly sad because I felt like the show had come so far away from that over the course of the last two seasons and to see, to see them revert in the season finale, eh, you know? But then I, I tell myself, like, I never expect season finales and or Christmas episodes to be any good. So the fact that I didn't want to throw the TV out the window when it was done, I guess you could count it as a win. <laughs> I, I gotta say, I'm usually let down by the finales because the lead up to it, we spend three months speculating how it's going to end. And it usually feels that much more exciting in my head than it is on the screen. And I will agree with you that I wasn't particularly happy with Bill, but I think my main complaint with the finale is um, I sort of saw a lot of it coming, you know, knowing the master was going to reemerge, knowing the Mondasian Cybermen were going to be there. Um, it, it was exciting to know that that was something to look forward to, but because it, it was set up as a mystery, you know, it was going to be surprised. They didn't just come out and say Mondasian Cybermen and the master. Uh, it was that, that episode, um, World Enough in Time, was a build-up to go, oh my goodness, here it comes. You're not going to mm-hmm. imagine what's going to happen. But we already knew. So that's, yeah, you know, one half of the finale was essentially. And then I think I called uh, the return of, of Heather. In oh, God, that drove me nuts. The first episode, I said, this is going to be a bookend. Because um, I was, I was ex- expecting it to either be a bookend with Heather or a bookend with French Fry Girl. Um, <laughs> which is... Yeah. Which I felt was a huge misstep uh, in the in introduction of Bill. I really disliked, you know, body sh- someone body shaming another character. But I was like, yeah. if that character comes back, how fascinating could that be? Um, that was actually, I think I, I complained about that to on, on an episode of Reality Palm. That really, as a as a as a fat chick, I really do not appreciate gratuitous fat shaming in my favorite show. But. Um, yeah, it's funny because one of the I think the the final episode didn't bug me as much for those reasons because I am really crap at seeing things coming. I don't you know when I read mystery novels I have to read the last page first because otherwise I stress because I can't figure it out. Like that's a weird gear that's missing in my brain. So like sometimes I notice things and sometimes I don't. But I do agree with you that ending that that was like the the the, the laziest sloppiest Deus Ex Machina I can imagine, and it's also a repeat of what they did to Clara. So, like, out of ideas much? On the other side of that same coin, Brent, you said this was your favorite episode of the series. It was. I And, yes, he did copy himself with the whole ending of Clara, but I thought he did it better this time. And, actually, you know, I care about Bill, and I didn't care about Clara. <laughs> so that may have been part of it. But I, I just... Um, you know, like you were saying, the, the build-up in World Enough in Time, it was really good, but it was sort of ruined by what we already knew. So I, I was eager to see what was going to happen next. So I was really excited for that last one. And, and you know, uh, a lot of Moffat's finales are, are disappointing, but I, I just 
I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, it sucked that she turned into a Cyberman and all this, but uh, it was really good drama. I really liked it. And I liked how we saw uh, Pearl Mackey's face, not a Cyberman's face that was the great. whole time. That was awesome. You know, when, yeah, it, you know, the first time they showed her in the barn, I thought, wait, what happened? Is she not a Cyberman anymore? And then it showed from the other side. I was like, oh, I see what they're doing now. <laughs> and uh, that was really great. Um, and, yeah, I liked I liked the Master and Missy fight at the end. Um, obviously, the Master's not gone. I had a little theory that, you know, when the Doctor has slammed his fist down, his regeneration energy fist down into the ground and killed other Cybermen, she was laying on the ground Ooh. when that happened. So oh. there's your uh, there's your window to bring her back as, as a different actor later or actor. As beautiful as a theory uh, that is, they have never once sought to seek a reason to bring the back master back from the dead. Yeah. It's I always mean, sort of like surprise, it's <laughs> me again. Yeah, yeah. Wait, how did you? I'll escape? tell you later. <laughs> but uh, and and the whole Heather thing. I I was surprised about I I had totally forgotten about that. I mean, I hadn't forgotten about it, but I, I wasn't expecting that. And so, to me, I didn't feel like it was a cheat because there was one... I forgot what episode it was. Somewhere in the middle where uh, Bill had a tear and didn't know where it came from or something. I think that might have been a little hint, but I didn't pick up on it. I, and so, it was okay with me that, that Heather came back. Uh I, I'm sort of in the middle of the both of you. Um, I felt uh, for the uh, Doctor Falls, uh, I felt that the Masters were underused because if you're going to bring two Masters back, make the story about the Masters. Uh, but every scene they were in, they stole the show. You know, just like Michelle Gomez always does. Anytime she's in a scene, doesn't matter what the plot of the episode is, when she's on screen, it's golden. I, I can't think of a scene where I didn't like it, with the exception of. Uh, well, the entire finale of, of series uh, eight when in the graveyard with the, the Cybermen. But uh, that being said, I do like a little ambiguity in my Doctor Who. I like us to be able to look at something and not be able to concretely say one reason or another or interpret one way or another. And there's a lot, I think, that you could interpret with this finale that is not great. And there's some that I think can can be interpreted in better ways. And I, I think there's a certain aspect, especially with a bill in the barn. It's some people seeing her as a monster and the doctor seeing her as a, as a human being that really speaks to the marginalization of, of, you know, whoever, whoever bill is filling in people of color or women or LGBTQ community. Um, there's, you know, in, there's, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was an effort on the production team's part to make that interpretation or if they were just trying to say that the doctor will always see his companions as who they are, not who they appear to be. Uh, but when I think about that episode, I, I prefer to think of it as uh, a little bit more fondly, uh, especially in the treatment of Bill. But <laughs> I say that a lot, but um I really can see how it could irk a lot of people. So how do we feel about Moffat and the Moffat era ending? Is this, I mean, I know we have one more episode. We've got the Christmas special. And I want to talk about the Christmas special, but 
Petra, I know as a as a I don't want to call you a convert, right? But as yeah. someone who is willing to give Moffat a chance, um, do you think that people are going to look back on Moffat's era fondly, not fondly? How are you going to look back and see it? I don't think I can make a generalization. He's such a polarizing figure in the fandom. I mean, obviously he's responsible for some some great episodes, but um, but I totally agree with Brett that I don't think the show has been this good since season five, and that is the entire Moffat era. Like, I just I think he is a brilliant writer of individual episodes. I do not think that he was good for the show as a showrunner. Mm. Um, and I. I'm happy. I, I I have my doubts about Chris Chibnall. Let that be said, because uh, Cyberwoman. But um, <laughs> I won't be happy till they bring back RTD. But that's just me, and I know I'm a little bit weird on that subject. So, and I also don't think that he would ever come back. But um, I'm I'm ready for a new era. Let's just say that. What about you, Brent? Uh, I'm a I'm a big Moffat fan. I, I mean, he's had his missteps. There's been some good and some bad, and maybe some more bad. <laughs> but uh, overall, I think he's he's been great. I, I was into him before Doctor Who. He had a show called Coupling that I used to watch a lot. That was really funny. I used to tell my friends it was friends, but funnier. <laughs> yeah, I could um, never get into Coupling. And, and, <laughs> and uh, Jekyll, when he did Jekyll, that was really great. Um, so I was excited when I heard he was coming to the show. His his era is more of like a fairy tale era, more so than um, like RTD's era was more of like a like a family oriented era as far as the characters showing their families and their home life and that kind of thing. And I I think Chibnall might go back to that type of thing too, watching like Broadchurch and episodes that he's written for Doctor Who already. So sure. show that too. Sure. Um, I think just for my two cents, Moffat is obviously a fan who has spent a lot of time thinking about Doctor Who. And once he got his hands on the wheel of the show, he he produced a Doctor Who he wanted to see. Uh, and I think if nothing else, when we look back, we're going to look back on his era as the, the fingerprint era. Moffat has definitely put his fingerprints all over the history of Doctor Who, and I'm not saying that's a and as a bad thing, but he has definitely filled in gaps that may never have otherwise been answered, and has certainly opened new doors to things that are to come. And speaking of which, uh, hmm. <laughs> I mean Moffat certainly in his in his episodes let loose the possibility and certainly made possible uh, that the Time Lords could not only regenerate, but regenerate and, and change race. Uh, and the race is tricky when you're dealing with alien uh, uh, individuals, um, but certainly gender. So let's move on to discuss the casting of Jodie Whittaker as the 13th Doctor. Uh, I'm really curious, first and foremost, where were you when you heard the news? You know, I don't remember. I think I might have... I, I remember being startled because of course I had forgotten the time difference and so I was at the gym or something it was midday I was thinking oh they won't announce it till the evening and then I get out of gym and I flip on my phone and all my friends are freaking out on Twitter so I think I got spoiled on Twitter before I ever saw the announcement um but it was still awesome (laughs) and how about you Brent uh where were you when you heard the news well we had to go shopping that day so uh I set the DVR on ESPN to record Wimbledon, knowing full well that they weren't going to show anything Doctor Who related. 
but um, I did it anyway. And I also recorded everything for several hours on BBC America, who said they were going to announce it at the same time, but they lied. So ultimately, all that was a complete and utter failure. So I went on YouTube and typed in 10th Doctor Announcement, and then I put my hand over it so I couldn't see anything. (laughs) And I hit the first one that was on there, and so I see this person walking through the woods. So I jumped up and ran into the kitchen so my wife could watch it with me. And uh, as soon as I saw the hoodie, I said, oh, I bet it's a woman because they're covering her hair. Then they show the hand, then the eye, and then she lifts the hoodie. And there's this girl there that I'd seen before, but I couldn't place her. And, um, and later I realized she's on Broadchurch and Black Mirror. And I thought, they've done it. It's a girl, you know. That's awesome. And uh, my wife was excited too. So so my wife and I were upstate New York. Uh, I was officiating wedding uh, the day before and uh, we were kind of traveling around the countryside visiting some friends and family but there upstate new york there was just no place to get a signal and so we were kind of hanging out in their backyard in this garden i hadn't been in 30 years and suddenly i get a ping on my phone that i have a signal and i just you know i figured might as well hop on facebook and say whoa okay well there's that spoiled um but it was the only place I could get a signal, and I was with friends and family. I just didn't want to take the time at that moment. So I you know, closed the phone, waited, half-listened to every conversation for the rest of the day. Uh, and then later in the evening when I got a signal, uh, I kind of devoured the Internet. So Priorities. That's, that's pretty – priorities, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So uh, what was your reaction to it? I mean, I know you – Brent, you both sound like you were quite excited about it, as was I. Um what were your like just kind of initial thoughts when that that happened when you found out? Oh, I was so excited! I was so excited, and I was a little bit disbelieving. Like I, you know, part of part of loving Doctor Who is being prepared to be disappointed by it, right? You know, that's right. We can we can say this because we love the show. Uh, yes. And and I I had that feeling you get when like something you had. I don't know, like you, it's almost like winning the lottery, except I've never won the lottery, where something you think is a million to one shot actually happens, and you're like, oh my god! Uh, at the same time, though, I think we also have to pay very close attention to all the voices of people who are saying, you know, it's wonderful that they've cast a woman, let's not forget she's also a blue-eyed, blonde, white woman, and there's a long way to go with representation on this show. Like there's a lot of triumphalism about the casting of Jodie Whittaker, and it's great, it's wonderful, it's about damn time, but... But let's not let's not forget other people in this in all of our excitement. Yeah, absolutely, Brent. Yeah, I was uh, I was sort of surprised, sort of not surprised. I mean, they, Moffat sort of laid the groundwork over the last couple of years of of uh, making it really very believable that there could be a female doctor with Missy with uh, that Time Lord guy that died and and regenerated on screen into a woman and um so i kind of thought maybe it was coming but um i was still a little surprised that they that they did it especially with a new showrunner coming in and you know you you might think you want to go for the safe choice but uh, you know if of uh if you're already having a big change with your showrunner you know, you you might want to go safe and not have a a double big change. You know, so I I was a little surprised, but I'm still excited. I mean, the show is always about change, so it's a pretty big change. <laughs> it really is a big change, absolutely. And Petra, you're you're right that um, you know this is a change that 
certainly doesn't reflect the representation of the entire viewing audience, but it certainly, uh, if we're looking at what this means for the show going forward, it certainly seems to open the door for all sorts of changes. Uh, I was surprised. I I was honestly very surprised. I did not think it was going to happen right out the gate with Chibnall. And so, you know, this actually brings me quite a bit of hope uh, for Chibnall's run. Because if they're going to come out of the gate swinging, then let's do it. I hope so. And, you know, I've had my issues with Stephen Moffat in the past, as anybody who knows me can tell you. But I have to give him props for carefully laying the in-canon as much as the show has canon. We, they, that's a whole other argument. But laying the in-show <laughs> groundwork for this change to happen. Because now we've seen a Time Lord change both race and gender in Regeneration. And it's, you know... It was right there on screen in front of us. You can't deny that's part of the universe now. And I do have to give him props for setting that up. Yeah, I I know that when the conversation first really... I mean, I know that they've been talking about a female Time Lord. Well, sorry, we, we know about female Time Lords. But the Doctor becoming a woman, they've been talking about that since the 80s. But um, I, I know a lot of folks were having the conversation where they didn't feel comfortable with that change occurring during the Moffat era. Uh, mm-hmm. as being like Moffat being problematic in the way he writes women. True uh, that. So true that. Uh, wouldn't it be better if we had more representation behind the camera, you know, in, in both the directors and the writers and the producers? We have no idea what Chibnall's writing staff is going to be like. We don't know who he's bringing on board. We don't know if the rumors of it being a, uh, kind of a bullpen style writing session is going to happen. But we have a female doctor. It is a thing that is going to definitely, definitely happen. Oh yeah. Just judging from the videos of young girls watching the announcement, you know, I was hesitant at first, you know, wasn't sure what was going to happen. I just got so happy. Was so happy, you know, and, and I say this as a white man, you know, I've been represented on this show uh, so as long as I've been watching it, but just understanding that this could open the doors for so much possibility and it's about time so heck yeah so what do you hope we'll see with a female doctor um it's huh interesting i mean i i'm mostly thinking in negatives i'm thinking of all the things i don't want to see (laughs) what do you what do you don't want to see with a female doctor i don't want to see biological determinism especially since time lord biology is not human biology like you know i i don't want to obviously they're not going to do a pregnancy plot line like they've done with companions before because we don't even know if time lords reproduce that way i mean it could be a loom who knows but i I don't want to see and i want to I guess what I want to see is I want to see the writers give give her time to settle into the character. I want to see give and take between the performers and the writers. You know, with Capaldi, you could see in the first season, his first season, which was a little uneven, that the writers were thinking, oh, he's got attack eyebrows. He's an older dude. He looks kind of angry. We're going to write him as this shouty, angry doctor. And it took a, it took a while before they twig that he's a much subtler actor than that and once they let him it seems to me I I mean I don't know what the writing process is like but this is my outside observation as a viewer that like it seemed as if after about a season and a half the writers finally were letting him drive the character development his skill set and his strengths and that made for a truly fabulous doctor and I, I want I want her to have time to screw up that's really what I want I want her to have time for the writers to figure out who she is and for her to truly become the doctor that only she can be. 
How about you, Rent? What do you not want to see? Well, I will say, like I was saying earlier, that this show's always been about change, and this is probably the biggest change since probably Patrick Troughton. And I'm excited about it, but my only concern is the writing. And, you know, I know they'll have to acknowledge that she's female now, uh, but I really don't want to want a bunch of boob jokes or the doctor to be over-sexualized because Doctor Who has never been about that. You know, we had the whole Ten and Rose thing, which I wasn't a big fan of, but then again, do, the end of Doomsday was, was really good. So, like I said, it's all about the writing. The only thing that concerns me, really, is this writing team that's coming in because that's never been done on Doctor Who before. It's always been one writer or two writers or whatever. And um, so that's that could go either way. <laughs> so that that's really what I'm looking for to see how much different the show is going to be, not just with an actress, but with this new direction of writing. I totally agree with you on that. Like, I don't want to see, I don't want to see a romance plotline. I don't want to see the do- dynamic between Doctor and Companion suddenly flip. I want to see kind of exactly the same stuff I would have seen with a male Doctor. That's really what I want. Yep. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can't ignore the fact that there is a physical change that's happened. Sure. You know, you know but it, you just can't. Well, I'm not saying you can't. They certainly can. But I'm hoping that whatever storylines are given to us are not based around the fact that the doctor has changed. Um, yeah. Though it yeah. would still be, it would still be interesting to see them address certain aspects of what it's like now to time travel when your lead is not uh, a white male. That might be interesting as yeah. long as it's not the, it's, it's not the absolute overarching plot of every single storyline. So every time they go to the past, uh, if they repeat that over and over again, while it is a, a absolute correct social message that that um, you know women are marginalized, if you do that every single time, I think that, that could take away. In it the takes same her, way yeah. That, yeah. It might be cool. I I I like it as like maybe one storyline is a bottle episode where you sort of bottle up the doctor with these societal constraints and see how she gets out of it. You know that could be yes. cool. But yes, I totally agree with you that that can't be uh, that can't be everything. Okay. Well, uh, Brent, is there anything that you do want to see um, specifically? Hmm. Well, I've never been a fan of comedy Doctor Who, but like, a, I would like to see at least one more season of lighter stories, sort of like we had this year. You know, it, it was uh, eight and nine were pretty drama heavy, and and um, and I'm good with dark stuff once in a while, just not every year. Totally. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and this year was I had some dark stuff in it, especially the last two. But for the most part, the season was really fun. It was an adventure show, like it has been in the past. So I'd like to see at least another year of that. Yeah the the embracing of new challenges and adventures is really kind of what I I come to Doctor Who for. Uh, though I do like the humor. In fact, when I look at favorite episodes, both classic and new, a lot of those are are humorous stories. But I agree. I would like to see it uh, a little bit lighter. But again, I say that now. Who knows how that's going to run? <laughs> I do have one fanish fantasy. Since like this is a season of such great change, I would love to bring back one of one of the older companions, just for a sense of continuity, and just because I love most of the older companions. Like, can't we fix Donna, please? <laughs> 
like, or where's Captain Jack? Like, how would Captain Jack react to a female doctor? That would be a hoot. You know, it's the funny thing about using bringing up Cat and Jack. You know, I've heard a lot of people saying, "Well, it does will the Doctor have to have a hot young male companion?" Uh, you know, it's like, well, I mean, you're flipping a dynamic, and it doesn't have to be that way. But with Captain Jack, it doesn't matter if anyone's not going to care that whether the Doctor is male or female. It's going to be Captain Jack. Yeah, he, the Doctor could be a plant. Captain Jack's <laughs> going to be cool with that. <laughs> That's why I want to bring him back. I think the dynamic would be so great. I, I agree, and I and Barriman agrees with you as well. I'm sure he's he's ready to get right back there in front of the camera. <laughs> that may not happen. Uh, hopefully, Chris Chibnall has his own ideas for dynamic characters. But I agree with you 100. percent It would be interesting to see how the companions react to the Doctor changing versus the doctor reacting to it yeah and and with a, with an older companion somebody who's you know been in the TARDIS before it would be that would be super interesting yeah yeah my vote would be martha uh she's it would really it would be really great to have competent martha back on the show yes please <laughs> god yes you know it's like well we don't really have to worry about the unrequited love storyline if we can bring her back and well, you know apparently she's married to mickey now which whatever with that yeah yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> things change. The future is ahead of us. Yes. Who who knows what it's going to bring? Um, so let's change things up again. Absolutely. Whenever we have a guest on the program, we like them because everyone who comes on the show is a Doctor Who fan, right? That's what the program's about. But we also know that the end-all and be-all of people's fandom is not Doctor Who. So every time we get a guest on the program, we ask them to bring us a show that is different and Petra, you have brought us. Uh, I'm very excited about your choice. Would you please tell us what non Doctor Who show you have chosen and why you chose it? Well, I have chosen another British show, um, which I think is, if not of as significant a vintage, at least it is as much of an enduring national classic at this point as Doctor Who. It is the Great British Bake Off. Woohoo! Woohoo! Known in America, if you watch it on PBS, is the Great British Baking Show, which uh, you could elucidate that. I think um, it's uh, it's just I love it so much. It's um, it's like getting a hug from your TV. It's it is a reality show, and I watch a lot of cooking reality shows. They're kind of my jam, but it's a, it's unlike any other reality show. It's even unlike I, I often say that it's unlike American reality shows, but it's also unlike every other British reality show. You know, most reality shows, with the possible exception maybe of Top Chef, I don't know, really, haven't watched it in a while, but they seem to be cast for less for talent than for flagrant personality disorders, you know, because that makes for good TV, although then you feel bad for the people as you watch. Um, but Bake Off is 12 people in a tent, and they're all wonderful people and really good bakers and that's all they are like so you watch them every week and and they're collegial and they support each other and and they bake amazing aspirational things and then of course it's we can talk about the new incarnation of bake off but i'm talking about the original one with paul hollywood and mary berry and mel and sue um who God, if there's ever a, if there's a celebrity stunt casting this season on Doctor Who, please let them bring in Sue Perkins as a one-off companion because she's the <laughs> best thing that was ever on TV. So yeah, Bake Off, it's great. It's the most soothing thing you can possibly watch. Yeah, Bake Off. Uh, 
is one of my wife and I's favorite programs. Um, this is one of the first times that a guest has brought on a show that I'm completely familiar <laughs> with and don't have to do a ton of research on. Um, this is the right before bed television show. So you know, if you had a stressful day, bake off. You've watched too many episodes of Jessica Jones, bake off. Uh, <laughs> this is definitely like getting a hug from your TV. Um, and as of the time of this recording, the most recent season of bake off or the baking show has the finished on PBS. So the finale aired a couple of weeks ago, um, even though it was originally aired nine months prior in the UK. Uh, so the whole world is now waiting for the new season, which is going to be starting very soon, if I'm not mistaken. They're being vague about it, but at end of the month-ish. Mm-hmm. And the reason they're being a little vague about it is towards the end of the last season, uh, the the program itself changed hands and is now going to be produced on is it channel four is that yes the production company love productions um fell out with the bbc over money um and abruptly moved the show to channel four which is a commercial competitor um at which point three quarters of the hosting team left so the only one left now is paul hollywood my least favorite um and they have a whole (laughs) new team around him so a lot of people are saying channel four bought you know, for 75 million pounds, they bought Paul Hollywood in an, in an empty tent. Uh, I'm still going to watch it because it's still Bake Off. But, you Absolutely. know, this is worse than The Doctor Regenerating because, you know, it's still the same show, right? But, like, I have no guarantees that this is going to be the Bake Off I love. I'm still going to watch That's it, true. though. <laughs> Brent, prior to uh, the beginning of this programming, you had not watched an episode of The Great British Bake Off. Is that correct? That's right. And so how much Bake Off have you watched? So uh, for the purposes of this podcast, I just started watching just a few weeks ago, and just about an hour ago, I finished the last episode of the current series, which was seven. Yes. Mm-hmm. So series I've seven. seen the I've seen the last four of those. So like the last six contestants, all the way down to the winner. Okay. So uh, just before we move ahead, spoilers for Great British Bake Off. <laughs> I haven't yes. seen it before. We are going to be talking about some of the winners, and if you're like me. Uh, Part of the joy. I wouldn't say this is an, a very tense show. Um, this is not a competition-heavy programming. You're kind of sort of wanting to root for everybody to win, and it's. Uh, but we are going to talk about the winners. So um, that being said, Brent, were you happy with the person who won this most recent season of the Great British Bake Off? Yeah. Um, so yeah, spoilers. Three, two, one. <laughs> uh, Candace, uh, I. I got to tell you, I was pulling for Jane, but and I did genuinely like all of these people. I really did. But Candace really was the most consistent, I think, the whole time. So I thought she might have got it. But you know, Andrew was right in there too. So it, you know, could have gone either way. How about you, Petra? Who are you rooting for in this most recent season? Oh well, emotionally Selassie, but right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I think Candace was my pick. This season is was a little weird. Um, honestly, if I was going to recommend a season of Bake Off to somebody, it would not be this one, because I think the bakers have been better in past seasons. Like, for me, the all-time jewel in the crown of Bake Off is season six, um, which, spoilers in three, two, one, but this aired two years ago, so come on, people, which was won <laughs> by the amazing Nadia Hussein and her fantastically expressive eyebrows. Um <laughs> Season six is so good. You should all watch it. Um, but yeah, season I, six I, is good. I think uh, I, 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 I had pegged Candace to win, so I was pretty happy when she did. 
Yeah, I'm I'm in total agreement with you on the. I mean, every single person on that program can bake better than I can. Me too, uh, for sure. <laughs> I I can't bake at all. I I failed at Rice Krispie treats last night. <laughs> oh, There's, honey. There are only there are only three ingredients in Rice Krispie treats, and I, yeah, I failed. Uh, so, wah, wah. but I will say that it seems like this crop of bakers this year was a little less interesting. And maybe they just didn't have that competitive edge. And I think um, to make up for that, Mel and Sue, certainly um, one of the things I think is so great about the show is their humor. I really enjoy it. Uh, it's it's almost like dad humor, but cl- more clever. Yeah. Uh, they really uh, ramped it up to compensate. Bake Off Double Entendres are their own special thing. Like, I feel like there's multiple Tumblr and Twitter accounts just devoted to, like, you know, soggy bottoms and giant baps and all the things that Mel and Sue say. Um, yeah, I think the highlight of, of this this season may have been the um, the edible pool hall uh, equipped oh with... Oh, God, yes! It, it, with its own carpet, <laughs> and they actually pull up the carpet. Yeah, yeah. That, that, would you like to munch some carpet? Uh, yep. <laughs> a, a reference that I think went completely over Mary Berry's head when she said, yes, I'll munch some carpet. Uh, yeah, you never know. Mary Berry's pretty sharp, but uh, that might just be culturally after her time. Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> so uh, we understand why you like it, um, but why do you think it is as popular as it is? I mean, this is a show... Let's, see, let's go back to Doctor Who for a second. The Doctor Who finale maybe nets in 6 million viewers, which is pretty good. It's going to land it in the top 10 or top 20 every single week. But the finale for The Great British Bake Off netted close to 13 million viewers, which was more than X Factor and a number of other programs. This is one of the most watched programs in the entirety of the UK. Why do you think that is? I think cake is universal. I mean, <laughs> Doctor Who is a wonderful show. I'm not knocking it, but it you do have to be a certain you have to have certain tastes to enjoy it, right? But like anybody who tells you they don't like cake is either lying or a terrible person. So like, I think baking is it's first of all the show as I said is like just the most soothing, comforting show. It's it's like visiting with friends, you know? You want to spend time with these people. It's also aspirational, right? There's some amazing statistics, which I wish I had the actual numbers to hand, but I, ha- I did some research on this once for a story when I was reporting on Bake Off about something or other, and some sales of baking equipment have increased by some amazing amount in the UK. Like, people... St- it's led to a revival of the Women's Institute, which is this you know, women's organization that does a lot of crafts and homemaking stuff and baking stuff. It's, you know, people are, are taking baking classes. I think it's, it's the fact that not only can you watch it, but then you can learn stuff from it. Like I have taught myself to do several things from Bake Off that, that are now part of my baking repertoire. And I'm super proud of myself because I'm like, I learned that on Bake Off. Okay. So what, like, give me an example. Um, so there's two things, um, both of which I learned from season six. Uh, one was in a very early episode of season six, they had to make these decorated Swiss rolls. And I saw a couple of people doing this technique where you pipe a pattern onto your roll, onto your, your, your cake pan, and then you pour the batter over it. And then when you roll it up, it has this beautiful pattern on it. So I taught myself to do that. And it turns out to actually be pretty easy and really pretty. And it's very exciting. Um, and then, Nadia at one point makes this showstopper and it's a giant P 
peacock, this molded cake. And she uses a technique that a lot of professional cake sculptors use where you like make an armature out of Rice Krispie treats, of all things. And then you cover it with modeling chocolate, which is basically white chocolate mixed with corn syrup. And she made her own modeling chocolate. And I was like, I want to try that. So uh, because every year I make, it's a whole thing. I make a chicken-shaped cake for this party that a friend of mine throws. It's become this weird tradition. So I, I adapted the stuff that I had seen Nadia do on Bake Off, and I made this chicken-shaped cake with, like, the head and the tail that were sculpted out of Rice Krispie treats and covered with modeling chocolate that I made. And then it was iced with Swiss meringue buttercream, which I also learned to make from Bake Off. <laughs> so so I wrote a bunch delicious. of stuff. Yeah, actually, I was pretty proud of that chicken cake. It came out well. <laughs> Brent? Anything yep. uh, that you saw that you uh, you said, you know what, I want to eat that? Well, there were two things that I saw this time. Uh, well, actually more than two. There was a roulade, like a dessert type of roulade. Uh, something called marzipan that I've never seen before. That looked pretty awesome. In the finale, they had to do, uh, I think it was called a Victorian sandwich or something. Victoria sponge. That's like a pretty classic British cake. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, that looked really good. And I was like, this show is making me really hungry. Uh, <laughs> it, we're going grocery shopping right after I finish recording, so I'm, I'm going to sneak by the bakery over there and see what they have. <laughs> That's brilliant. This is one of those brokers where everything looks good to me, mainly because I, I am allergic to wheat, and so... Uh, oh. They've only done one episode where they've done gluten-free things. I'm like, hey, I could, you know, I've watched 64 episodes of this program, and I've seen one episode where I could eat the things that they make. No, uh, you could eat, you could, you could have eaten the finale showstopper this season, couldn't you? Weren't they meringue crowns? Didn't they make meringue? No, yeah. that's true. That's true. You're right. I can, I yeah. can eat meringue. And there's a famous showstopper from a couple seasons ago called the Spanish Avintata, which is a forgive my German accent. It's terrible, but it's basically like layers of meringue and pastry cream and it looks amazing and i want to try making it okay it's true i i am mm. a big fan uh that does sound <laughs> that sounds pretty good so we have mentioned um a number of idiosyncrasies that happen on the program you know the the mary berry and and of course mel and sue's humor and people being nice to one another so here's my question we're going to close the show out with this imagine that you have got a great british bake-off drinking game what things would you <laughs> – I know. Try not to get too excited about this. Um, so if I, – I, again, probably wouldn't recommend doing this game the first time you watch it. Uh, certainly, you know, enjoy it sober and get the real feel for it. But if you were going to include items on this bake-off drinking game, what are some of the things you would include? Oh, there are so many. I mean, obviously, you drink whenever Mary does. <laughs> Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> uh, you drink whenever you see somebody looking anxiously into their oven or or sipping a mug of tea and staring into the middle distance. Right. Um, you, you could drink whenever an oven doesn't work. doesn't yes, happen often. Or but... somebody forgets to turn it on. Right. Drink oh, whenever no. somebody burns their caramel. Oh, oh my goodness. That would really be dangerous <laughs> on this last last episode with jane and her five five pots of caramel uh-huh drink obviously drink for every double entendre no one's gonna uh -huh. be able to get through this game <laughs> um how about every handshake oh uh, yes uh, that was gonna be my next thing drink for every paul hollywood handshake for sure <laughs> what if what if he gives you a double handshake oh that's a, that's a drink kill because it doesn't happen very often you no, gotta chug you gotta chug when that happens 
Um, let me think. Hearing them say, oh, bake. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. When Sue says, bake. Um, How about Mel and Sue st- steal something off of somebody else's a baker's plate? Or they destroy, they managed to sabotage a baker's uh, recipe by yes. stealing something that they needed. Or, yes, drink for that. And it's a, and chug if, if, one of them accidentally wrecks somebody's bake because that's happened not this yeah, season but yeah, in past has. seasons <laughs> yeah i think that'll get you pretty soused i think we're we're on our yeah, own yeah. yeah and drink whenever somebody cries oh oh yeah, yeah i've got one too yeah what's up brent i got one too uh paul staring at you yeah yeah the piercing which... paul hollywood stare yeah, at one point, uh, I think it was the finale or the one right before that, Jane looks and says, go away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Was she the one who kept calling him the male judge? Or was that, that might have been a previous season. I can't remember. There was one I, I woman think... who was not having it with Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The male judge. Yeah, absolutely. Was that <laughs> Nancy? No, I, I get I get a lot of the, a lot of the folks confused. Um, yeah, there's the stare and... You don't know if he's gonna like it or not like it, so maybe drink. If if he you, you uh, if he stares but doesn't like it, you got you can drink. Or if he stares and, and does like it, you you choose ahead of time which one that's right. going to be. Yeah, exactly. Build, you get that drink tension. Yeah. Yep. 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 Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's and- a lot of things to like about this program, uh, straight or sober. <laughs> uh, the Great British Bake Off is truly a fun one. I will also say just briefly that if you are a fan of Sue Perkins you should, and, and British shows about food, uh, The Supersizers is also wonderful. And I think it's on Hulu. It pairs Sue with Giles Corrin, a restaurant critic. And every week they have to, they pick an era and then they have to spend a week wearing the clothes, living the life and eating the food. And it's usually some era where you can't drink the water. So Drunk Sue, if, uh, you know, Drunk Sue is, is a sight to behold. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. I uh, I second that recommendation. <laughs> Vegetarians, beware of the Victorian era. Oh yeah, the, most of the shows are not safe for vegetarians. I have to. I have friends that I have to cover their eyes when we watch. They still love the show, but I have to cover their eyes. Absolutely. Well, Petra, um, thank you for joining us. Do you have any? Uh, Want to let any folks know where to find you? Sure. Yeah. Um, I am. You can find me at professionally at NPR Books on Twitter. I'm also NPR Books on Facebook and other social media platforms, Tumblr sometimes, um, uh, books.npr.org, or you can holler at me on my personal Twitter, which is Petramatic. Um, I will say hi to you back and recommend books if you ask me to. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us on our program today. My pleasure. This is so fun. And thanks for joining us on Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. And the cake this week, month. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixel who. Who and Company can now be found on iheartradio.com or you can download the podcast directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. You can also contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany or email us at whoandcompany.com at yahoo.com See you next month Now I'm off to get into my brine nylon boob tube and my terry towelling hot pants Hello Sarah Fake! Fake! Get set 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 Fake!